read from Genesis 50, verse 15 to 21. You can follow along with your bulletin if you wish. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. This is God's word. Thank you, Angela. Um, For those of you who are visiting with us, just to catch you up on what we've been doing here at Grace Valley lately, we are uh, in the middle of a series right now. We're actually coming to the end of a series right now on... um, what we're calling the big objections. These are those things about the Christian faith that people find difficult to believe, difficult to receive. They are things that get in the way of them being able to really give Christianity a chance, so to speak, in their minds. And these are not just problems that... um, Do I sound a little, like, echoey? Sorry. I feel that way to myself. I don't want to... No, we're good? Oh, okay. We're good. Um, These are not just problems that non-Christians have, okay? These are problems that Christians have too. Christians are just as likely to struggle with these issues as um, non-Christians are. The difference is is that uh, they have come to deal with those issues from a position of faith in God and in Jesus Christ, as opposed to a position of skepticism about God and Jesus Christ. And just so that you know, we, we try to be a place where, where Grace Valley wants to be a church where we are clear thinking, deep feeling, humbly serving. We want to be a place where people, regardless of where they are in their relationship with God, feel free to ask questions. Sometimes very difficult questions that can make me super duper uncomfortable. You should have seen me last week after the sermon. I got so many hard questions. I was sweating buckets by the end of the service. If you have a question about the message this morning, you can feel free to ask it after the message. We'll have a time where you can ask questions. If you don't want to kind of raise your hand and ask it in person, you can text me. I have my phone right here. You can text me. Uh, The phone number is right there in in the bulletin. Uh, and feel free to ask whatever question you have. Um, I will do my very best, but as we saw last week, my very best is not always that good. Anyhow, 
This, this morning we're dealing with the last objection in our series. And we've, in some ways, we've saved the most difficult one for last. We're dealing with what is probably the toughest objection that people have, and it's the question of evil and suffering. I do a lot of interviews with non-Christians, and I ask them what are the things that they believe about right and wrong, uh, what, uh, about God, about Jesus, and what are the things that stand in the way of them being willing to think about God as being real and good and loving and kind. And the number one problem they have with Christianity is this, evil and suffering. Why does a good God let bad things happen? Now understand, this, this objection is probably the hardest because it combines two things. It combines the logical problem and the emotional or what I'll call existential problem in a way that none of the other objections do. And what I mean by that is this. There's this logical issue which says, look, an all-good, all-powerful God is simply not compatible with a world that is so rife with evil and suffering like ours is. That's sort of the logical problem. But then there's the, the existential problem, and it's this. We suffer. We hurt. The people around us whom we love very deeply suffer and hurt as well. And we need comfort. We need consolation. And sometimes it's not actually the logical problem that is, is really the thing that sticks in our craw. It's the emotional existential problem that sticks in our craw. For many of us, the problem isn't reconciling uh, whether a good God can allow evil and suffering. The problem is, is that there is evil and suffering and I'm, I'm dealing with it every day and so are many, many other people in the rest in the world. There's, there's a difference between why and why. You know what I mean? I've cried both types of why. I've asked both types of why. And I know a number of you well enough to know that some of you have asked both types of why, and you've asked the second type of why, the why, the, the cry of despair, the cry of anguish, the why of pain and suffering. You have asked it many, many times. And so I admit, I'm a little nervous I, I, about preaching this message because this is, this is really, 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 really hard. But what I hope to do this morning as we look at our text together is actually show you why it is that Christianity and the biblical gospel is actually the best explanation of evil and suffering that the world has to offer. And I know some of you are like, oh, man, that's a pretty provocative statement. But I told you each week I was going to try to put this in a very provocative way. And so we're putting in a pro provocative way again this morning. What I mean by, the, by saying it offers the best explanation is this. It gives the most coherent, logical explanation for evil and suffering in the world. But more and almost more importantly, I think it provides for us the deepest and most powerful resources to face evil and suffering of all the ways of thinking in this world. Okay, there is a, a, an outline on the back of your bulletin if you want to follow along. It might 
that might help you understand sort of the steps in the argument. But here we go. We're going to look at this passage uh, in this story of Joseph to deal with whether or not Christianity gives the best account of evil and suffering. Uh, for those of you, we all, many of us probably know the story of Joseph. You, many people who haven't even gr grown up in the church know the story of Joseph thanks to um, the musical, right? Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. You know the basic story. Joseph was a, a man who suffered a great deal. Uh, he starts out his life as his father's favorite child out of all of his brothers. As a result of his father's coddling and perhaps some of his own natural inclinations, Joseph, as a young man, is somewhat uh, proud and self-centered and kind of uh, uh, thinks he's maybe a little bit better than his brothers. And in any case, his brothers, because of the favoritism he receives from his father, they hate him. They cannot stand him for it. And so what they do is, is they sell him to slave traders. And those slave traders take Joseph down to Egypt. They sell him to a household, a man by the name of Potiphar, where uh, Joseph begins as a lowly slave and makes his way up through the ranks in the household until he's basically running this, his boss's estate. Uh, his, he's a good-looking guy. His boss's wife hits on him. He turns her down in, out of anger and spite. She falsely accuses him of attempting to rape her. And Joseph gets thrown into prison where he spends at least, probably much more, but at least a decade whiling away in obscurity. And understand something. This is, um, this is an ancient Egyptian maximum security prison. This is not like our prisons here. He is basically as close to hell on this side of real hell that you could live in and experience. And Joseph whiles away for at least a decade, completely forgotten, it seems. But of course, as you know in the story, things happen in such a way that eventually he is released from prison and finds his way into not Potiphar's household anymore, but Pharaoh's household. He becomes the second in command in the entire nation of, of Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world at the time. And during his tenure, he prepares that land to face a famine uh, uh, that was coming in the future, and when that famine hits, thanks to, to Joseph, many, many people are saved. Not because Joseph coordinated all this, but God used Joseph to save not only his own family, but countless other people uh, from this worldwide famine or known world famine, including Joseph's brothers. Now, when we pick up this story, Joseph has been reunited with his brothers, those brothers that had sold him into slavery at least 20 years prior, probably more. And his brothers, by the time we get to our story, his brothers realize that, that they've done a terrible thing and they're afraid that Joseph is now seeking revenge. And so in verse 15 of our passage, it says this, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? They, they hatch a plan because they think he's going to let them have it. And in verse 17, it says, this is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. So they say that their dad's dying wish, essentially, was, Joseph, don't hold this against your brothers. Please forgive them. They're going to throw themselves on his mercy. Now, let's stop right there. What on earth does this have to do with the problem of evil? This is going to look really obvious to you, but it's a hugely important point. 
Joseph's brothers realized they had done something horribly, horribly wrong. They understood that they had done something very wicked. Notice that they, they said, what if Joseph pays us back? In other words, they know that, that there's, a, there's a, 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 the equilibrium in their relationship with Joseph is off. There has been an injustice incurred against Joseph by them. And, and they're worried that he is going to take matters into his own hand to, to right the scales of justice, so to speak. Now, Here is a fair question to ask. How do they know what they did was evil? How do we know what is evil versus what is good? Where does evil come from? Where does the concept of good versus evil come from? All human beings have this innate sense of justice. You say to yourself, I know where, where we, knowledge comes from. It comes from inside of me. I know it's wrong to sell your brother into slavery. You don't need to be a rocket scientist to figure that out. Okay, sure. But understand something. People say, people object to the existence of God because there is evil in the world. Okay. But it's fair to ask the question in response, how do we get this concept of evil if there is no God. Without God, it's very hard to know what is right and what is wrong, what is evil and what is good. Martin Luther King Jr., some of you are probably familiar with him. He, uh, he spearheaded the civil rights movement in uh, the United States during the 1950s and 60s. While he was in Birmingham jail, he was thrown into Birmingham jail because he was charged with inciting violence, which he hadn't done. And while he was there, he was trying to demonstrate, he was trying to make a case for why the civil rights movement was proper, why it was right, why he should continue to perpetuate it. And he basically asked this question in his letters to Birmingham jail. He asked the questions, how do we know any human deed is unjust? Only if a higher law declares it to be unjust. Or as Ravi Zacharias likes to put it, some people feel like loving their neighbor, other people feel like eating their neighbor. How do we know which feeling is a good feeling and which feeling is an evil feeling? And I thought I would get way more chuckle out of the, the Ravi Zacharias quote than I got. Some people feel like loving their neighbor, other people feel like eating their neighbor. How do we know which one is... Now, you cannot just look to the natural world. You can't say, well, it's because through evolution, uh, human nature has, has uh, developed this sense of right and wrong, and as we, we lived in this natural world where it's just time plus chance plus matter, and, and through the evolutionary process, we've come to this conclusion, because there is absolutely nothing in the natural world that would lead you to that conclusion. Nothing. When Charles Darwin discovered the, uh, the or, or invented or came up with, or whatever you want to say, the theory of uh, evolutionary origin of the species, he looked out at the world and he saw survival of the fittest. He saw the stronger eating the weaker. He saw an entire world that was not based on our moral reasoning at all. It was the opposite. 
It was, look out for number one. So you can't point to the natural world. Now, I'm not saying, listen, I'm not saying that if you're an atheist and you don't believe in God, you can't be a good person. Not saying that at all. In fact, sad to say, I mean, sad for Christians to say, but the reality is, is, is there are atheists out there, many atheists out there, that are better people, more moral people than lots of Christians out there. What I am arguing is, is that there's no logical basis on which that moral reasoning is founded. Some of you know C.S. Lewis. I've quoted him a lot recently. I'm going to quote him again this morning. C.S. Lewis was an Oxford professor of uh, Renaissance and medieval literature. And uh, he was a very brilliant man. And he was an atheist for a long, long time. But when he describes how he became a Christian, the problem of evil was both the reason, the biggest reason for him not being a Christian and actually ended up being the reason he converted. Weird, eh? Well, not so weird. Listen to this. My argument against God was that the universe seemed cruel and unjust. But how had I got the ideas of just and unjust? What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying that it was a private idea of my own, but if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. Because the argument against God depended on saying that this world really was unjust and not simply that it did not happen to please my private fancies. You see the, the problem that he found himself in? This world is unjust. I know it deep in my bones. There are things that are messed up in this world. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. Wait a minute. Without God, how do I know that this world is not the way it's supposed to be? Isn't this world precisely the way it's supposed to be if there is no God? But then why do I feel like this world isn't the way it's supposed to be. And I know it isn't the way it's supposed to be. See the dilemma that he found himself in? Here's the point. In some ways, the existence of evil, the problem of evil, is a bigger problem when you don't believe in God than it is when you do believe in God. Because when you do believe in God, you at least know that there is a basis on which for you to judge whether there is evil or good, whether there is right or wrong. Now, your head is swimming, so take a breath. My head is swimming, so I'll take a breath. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, whatever. Maybe everything I just said makes you respond with, frankly, I don't care. I don't care if I don't have a technically moral basis for my objection uh, to evil in the world. I don't, I don't care about that because when I look around, all I see is pointless evil and suffering. It's there. It's happening all the time. It's terrible. And you Christians with your God, he's doing nothing about it. What I want to know is, why didn't God stop the Holocaust? And as a Christian, I would tell you that my most fundamental answer actually is, I don't know. 
I don't know. But even though that's my fundamental answer, it's not the whole answer. And it doesn't have to be the whole answer. If we go back to this story of Joseph and his brothers, you know, they throw themselves on his mercy and they're begging him to forgive them for what they did to him. And Joseph's response is remarkable. In verses 19 and 20, it says, But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Now, Joseph's answer here in these two verses, he has something, he gives us something for our heads and for our hearts, okay? Something for our minds and something for our, our emotions, something for the logic and something for the existential. And we're doing the whole mind thing right now, so we're going to stick with that and then we'll switch over, okay? So we're still on the logical side of things. In verse 20, Joseph says something astounding. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Now, this is the guy speaking from within his suffering. This is not some preacher standing outside looking at some poor sap who's had a horrible life and saying, well, it's uh, intended for good. This is him who has experienced it himself, who has been through it himself, and he says that there was a reason for his suffering, that God used his suffering to save many, many, many people. Now, this is a tough one to hear, and I ask you to, rather than have an emotional kind of angry response in your head for a minute, just listen. Try. When we say, I look around and I see all this pointless suffering, what we're actually saying is, unless I know the reason for the suffering around us, it has to be pointless. When I say I see pointless suffering around me, what I'm really saying is, because I don't see a point to it, it must be pointless. And with all due respect, I don't think that's fair. Why? Why does that have to be the case? Some of you may have heard of a man by the name of Alvin Plantinga. He's one of the most brilliant philosophers of religion in the world right now, happens to be a Christian. And he uses an experiment to, to challenge this assumption. He says, imagine, uh, imagine if, if I set up a tent here, just a little pub tent, and I asked you to look inside that pub tent and, and asked you, hey, do you see a St. Bernard in there? And you would look back at me and you would say, no, I don't see one then in all likelihood, there's no St. Bernard in that little pub tent, right? But now, let, let me say, okay, stick your head in there, and I ask you, do you see a gnat? You know what a gnat is, right? Those itty-bitty, little bitty-bitty bugs, or no see some people call them. And you say, nope. Does that mean there's no gnat in the pub tent? No, right? It's not, it's not safe to assume there's no gnat in the pub tent. We tend to look at evil and suffering and expect it to be more like a St. Bernard than a gnat. But why? 
why should we expect that we should know why all these bad things that have happened are happening? You know, Joseph, look at what Joseph says. He says, am I in the place of God? Don't skip over that so quickly. Joseph knows that he's limited. Joseph knows that his intellect is limited. Look, is it safe to say that God in his nature, in his knowledge, in his power, in his being, that his greatness is the distance between his nature and our nature is even greater than the distance between our nature and your pet cat. Yes? Now, what if your pet cat is sick and you take your pet cat to the vet and your vet says that your pet cat needs such and such shots and it's going to cost you $3,400? And you say, okay. Right? And he pulls out that needle and he sticks that needle in the cat and the cat freaks out and it starts clawing at you and clawing at the doctor trying to get away. It thinks it's being killed. Now, do you sit there and say to the cat, now listen, cat, I know that this is a little difficult for you to understand, but there's antibiotics in that needle and therefore you need to take this needle because ultimately it's going to be good for you. You're going to feel better at the end of the day, so could you please stop clawing at me? No, you don't try to explain it, right? You just hold the cat down and say, hurry up, get it done. Your cat doesn't understand. Well, friends, we heard it in our prayer just a few minutes ago. Ange quoted Isaiah 55. We didn't even plan this, but I'm going to quote Isaiah 55 as well because it's so important to us right now. God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Now listen, this is not a cop-out. Some of you might be saying, oh, well, oh, you're just playing the omniscient card, huh? Well, he knows everything, and we don't know anything, so shut up and don't ask questions. That's not what I'm saying. This is not a cop-out. You want a God who's big enough to stop the suffering you don't like. But then you've also got to be willing to have a God big enough to allow the suffering for good reasons that you can't understand. You can't have it both ways. God's thoughts are far beyond our thoughts, far beyond our own. Hindsight is twenty twenty, right? Like how many times have, and I'm not talking wicked, wicked suffering, but there are enough lousy things that have happened in your life, things that didn't, weren't supposed to go the way they were supposed to go, and then you look back and you go, oh, that ended up bringing out a better outcome than I ever anticipated possible. I'm not saying the evil itself was okay. We'll talk about that in a second. It's, you can't, look, what I said makes sense, but it's cold comfort. You can't use that on yourself when you're in the pit. Joseph didn't say that when he was in the prison. He could say that to his brothers when he got out on the other side. But Joseph is also not just speaking to our heads, he's speaking to our hearts. We're going to move now to the existential side, to the emotional side, to dealing with our hearts here. 
Joseph says that God meant this for good. Christianity gives you unique reasons, unique resources, I should say, to deal with suffering. If you get rid of God, you've done nothing with evil and suffering. They're still there. They still suck. They're still... Little babies in South Sudan who are going to die today simply because of starvation. Now, of course, it's starvation and famine coupled with uh, corrupt government leadership. So let's not just say this is all God's fault. There's a lot of human components in the really terrible things we see too. But when you look at a tsunami hitting Indonesia, that's just awful. It's just awful. But if you get rid of God, that awful is still there. How do you face it? How do you get up in the morning and deal with your own suffering and hardship? How do you wake up in the morning and say, I'm not going to just end it all, but I'm going to endure? Listen to what Tim Keller writes. He says, Christianity teaches that contra-fatalism, suffering is overwhelming. Fatalism would say it's not fatal. We're just all part of a machine. Suffering is no different than good things, you just kind of go through it. Contra Buddhism, suffering is real because Buddhism teaches that suffering is an illusion. Contra karma, principle in Hinduism, suffering is often unfair, but contra secularism, suffering is meaningful. There is a purpose to it. And if faced rightly, it can drive us like a nail deep into the love of God and into more stability and spiritual power than you can imagine. There are two ways that Christianity gives you resources to face suffering and deal with it. And the first one is, is the gospel says that suffering is meaningful. The Bible, just like in this story with Joseph, and Joseph says God used evil for good, the Bible says over and over and over again that God uses evil against itself. At the beginning of Joseph's story in his life, frankly, he's a bit of a brat. He's selfish, he's not very compassionate or empathetic to his brothers, he's stupid enough to walk among their midst wearing this coat that his dad gave him and tell them about all these great uh, dreams that he's been having where they're bowing down to him. He's not very self-aware. But by the end of the story, he has been made humble. He has made, been made wise. He has been made gentle. Now, this is not some sort of trick, little logical trick, where we're trying to say evil is actually good. Evil is still evil. It's still wrong. It's not like you worked hard to make it to the NHL and you finally get drafted to the big leagues and in the first practice you blow out your knee and your career is over and you end up in the hospital and you think your life is over and you meet some really great nurse and you fall in love and you marry her and you look back and you say, how great that I blew out my knee and don't get to be an NHL superstar because I married her. It's not what we're saying. What we're saying is ultimately... Evil is not the last word. Evil does not win. God does. What's the gospel? The gospel is the Son of God dying on a cross for His enemies. I think you would agree that the suffering of a human being far outstrips the suffering 
of an animal, even, even wonderful animals that matter to us. They don't experience suffering the same way we do, right? A cat that's dying of cancer does not, is not aware of its suffering the way a human being dying of cancer is aware of its suffering, right? Well, how much more aware of his suffering is someone that is divine, not just human, but divine. And here is God himself suffering in the person of Jesus Christ for his people. And there are people watching this happen, looking at the cross and saying, this is senseless, this is pointless, there could be no good reason for this. And they're witnessing the greatest act of redemption in history. God used the death of his own son for good. And this is what led Fyodor Dostoevsky, who wrote The Brothers Karamazov, one of the great works of literature in all of history. He says this. This is one of the characters, Alyosha, in The Brothers Karamazov. He says, I believe like a child. Now listen, when you believe like a child, the way he's using it is not like, oh, I'm dumb and I believe in Santa Claus. No disrespect, children. To believe like a child means to have the humility to trust in a truth that outstrips your ability to comprehend all of it. And so he says, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for, that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small Euclidean mind of man, that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, of the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, of all the blood that they've shed, and it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify what has happened. Ultimately, in the future, the unbelievable, see, there's a lot of reasons, there's a lot of reasons to question Christianity. Here's the big one. Really? You know what? If you're not a believer here today, I hope this is why. It sounds way too good to be true. Yeah, it's hard to understand that there could be suffering and God is good. That's tough. Yeah, we talked last week about conscious judgment, the concept of hell. That's tough, sure. But at the end of the day, what it should really bug you is, is it's just too good to be true. That the Bible would actually go so far as to dare say to you that your suffering, that the suffering of the world collectively somehow is going to achieve a glory that makes it all feel like a flea bite. The audacity, the audacity of the gospel to dare do that, but that's, that's the promise that ultimately it is all going to be transformed. It is going to be swallowed up. Ever wonder why Paul says death will be swallowed up in victory? When you swallow something, what happens? It becomes part of you. It makes you bigger and stronger and more energized. Sometimes makes you too much bigger. Chuckle, chuckle, chuckle. 
But death will be swallowed up in victory. Death will be swallowed up in victory. It will be swallowed up by, by the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, which will be more glorious because of it. I know that's outrageous. I can't prove it other than to say, look at the cross of Jesus Christ. Where the, that actually happened in time. When Jesus died and then death was swallowed up in his resurrection. That's for the future though, okay? And that's huge. No other religion gives you even anything remotely close to that. And that's for later, but there's something for now too. The gospel gives you hope now in the midst of your suffering. In Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says this. This is verses 3 through 5. He says, not only so, but we rejoice in our sufferings. That's not we rejoice for our sufferings, but we rejoice in in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope, hope, my friends, does not disappoint us. Christianity is the only religion that dares, dares to say that God suffers alongside us now. In the secular view, suffering just is. Like, it's just a crapshoot. It's luck of the draw. It sucks to be you. You are lucky to be born here and raised here, and it just you're born in Iraq clinging to some mountainside for dear life. It's just how it is. In Hinduism, suffering's karma. Boy, you must have been a real slime ball in your last life, and now you're paying for it. Suck it up, buttercup. In Buddhism, suffering is an illusion. What you need to do is you need to change your thinking in order to quench your desire that causes suffering, and, and then you can overcome this thing that really isn't there. But in the gospel, your suffering is given justice, and the God of your suffering suffers too. In the gospel, you have God in the flesh, in Jesus Christ, suffering like us. You know, on the, on the front of your bulletin, I put a quote from Friedrich Nietzsche, okay? He did not like Christianity. But even he said, now he's referring to the Greek gods, but he said, the gods justified human life by living it themselves. The only satisfactory response to the problem of suffering ever invented what he's saying is, is human life as it is, is justified by the gods because they were willing to take their own medicine. But you see, in the gospel, that is supremely true. Jesus was willing to take his own medicine, and so he empathizes with us. He understands. He knows what you're going through. He knows injustice. He, he's experienced it. He knows violence. He knows rejection. Think about how Jesus, while he was on the cross, in the midst of his suffering, he cried the why. The why that you raise your fist and you rail, against, not against God, but you call out to God and you just say, I don't get it, why? He knows that. And he knows it to a depth that you and I could never, ever comprehend. 
Your deepest need in the midst of your suffering, you know what? Your deepest need in the midst of your suffering is not some logical explanation, though I worked hard at giving you one. It's not, it's not even this future of, this will be used and it'll be awesome. When you're sitting in the pit, when you're sitting on the, on the, the manure pile, what you need you need someone there with you. You need to know you're not alone. You need to know you're not facing this all by yourself. And that's what you get in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You get a God who knows, who suffered for you, so that when you suffer, He is with you. Let's pray. Father, we, we don't have all our problems solved, I'm sure, this morning. But I pray that we would find comfort in knowing that we do not suffer alone. In knowing that you know what we're going through that your promise is to ultimately overcome it and that even though we don't know why we're in it now, we can know it's not because you're punishing us. It's not karma. Because Jesus was punished for us. Give us faith. Faith in the midst of hardship so that we can not only face our own suffering, but we can comfort those in our lives and around us who suffer too. In Jesus' name, amen.